Creative Babble. This podcast contains disturbing and violent content. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Criminal Conduct. When paramedics arrived at the scene, Michelle Connell was barely hanging on to life. When Mark said, I've got a pulse, Jeremy's whole demeanor changes. And as we get out the front door, he swings his elbow back toward me and almost hit me in the face. And he starts pacing out in the driveway and growling. That's all I can say. He sounds like he's growling. He was angry. He just was like, ah. Eight years after her death, an amateur sleuth by the name of Eli Washtock started looking into her case. He was very near close to having a conclusion to the multiple investigations that he commissioned, and he'd spent tens of thousands of dollars. The only thing he was doing with his life was investigating this murder, suicide, whatever you want to call it. That's obviously so much controversy on it. And all of a sudden, boom, you know, supposedly he's turned up some good stuff, and now he's gone. In 2019, Eli Washtock hired a lawyer to track down the water records for Jeremy and Michelle's house at 4700 Sherlock Place in St. Augustine, Florida. He wanted to figure out how much water was used around the time of her death. I bet Eli was trying to get the water records because of what Deborah Maynard said about Jeremy smelling like a fresh shower. Do you think we could get the hourly water meter records? I mean, it's possible, but I think it's unlikely they're gonna find hourly water records from like nine years earlier. Here, let me look this up. So water meters measure water by cubic feet. 100 cubic feet equals 750 gallons of water. An average shower uses about 17 gallons of water. I mean, it sounds crazy, but it's possible that if we get an hourly report from that night, it might show a spike in water use. It would present new evidence, but hardly a smoking gun. He could have run the washing machine or the dishwasher, but I'm not sure when. We know that Eli chased this lead pretty hard. He got some help from Ed Slavin. On September 2, 2010, Michelle O'Connell was murdered in the home of Deputy Jeremy Banks. It turns out that the water meters can, in fact, deliver an hour-by-hour report. But we probably will never see this report. Here's Ed speaking again to the Board of Commissioners. And there was a full-on cover-up, and that man helped. Patrick Francis McCormick helped. He refused to provide the water use record for 4700 Sherlock Place, showing how much water was used the night of that event. We can't substantiate Ed Slavin's claims. However, one thing is certain. The server with the water records for Jeremy's house is gone. They were going to take the server or servers from the St. John's County Utility Department, put them on a truck, and send them to North Carolina for data analysis to see if they could retrieve the data. They don't even have a bill of lading for the truck. They don't have any specifics about what the readout was. And I think the, the answer to the question of, did Jeremy Banks have a shower? 
is going to be very pertinent to your investigation because Jeremy Banks never washed a dish and we know how much a toilet consumes when you flush a toilet. And the question is, did he have a shower? And what would that record reveal? When we requested the water usage records, we were told they were unavailable. Though, based on conversations we've had with several anonymous sources, Eli may have gotten a hold of the actual water records. If he did, I bet that information is in the binder. But let's back up a little bit. Was there even enough time for Jeremy to take a shower? I don't think so, but that's based on the witness statements. I spoke to an individual who claimed he reviewed the hour-by-hour water records for Jeremy's house. He didn't want to be identified, but he said there was nothing to indicate anyone took a shower around the time of Michelle's death. But since he refused to actually produce the water usage records, we couldn't verify it for ourselves. From the creators of Twisted and Pretend, this is Criminal Conduct Season 1, an investigative podcast looking into the death of Michelle O'Connell and the murder of Eli Washtock. Let's go back to September 2nd, 2010, the night Michelle died. The paramedics are inside trying to revive her. Jeremy's outside talking with Detective Jessica Hines in the back of a police cruiser with his sergeant present. We got a hold of the recorded interview from inside Detective Hines' police car. All right, this is Detective Hines. It is officially September 3rd at 1.23 in the morning. Um, By the way, the quality is not so great, and it's also not typical for detectives to interview somebody in their car. But let's go ahead and play the audio. What time do you think you'll have the show? I think 10.30. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I remember, okay. I think I remember it being around 10.30. I'm not sure, though. Okay. We weren't arguing when we got home. We got home, and... We, we talked about it. We just said, you know, enough's enough. We've been fighting. We're done. We're tired of each other's shit. And I, I told her that I, I do love her, that, that I love Alexis, her little girl. But mm-hmm. I just don't feel like she's like we're best friends anymore. It's just it's not working out. And she agreed. Right. You know, I went outside. I talked to my buddy who was still out in the yard for, with me for a little bit. I was talking to him, and then he left. And I sat on my motorcycle, and that's when I and just in case you couldn't make that out he says I was talking to him and then he left and I sat on my motorcycle and that's when I heard the gun pop other than the 911 call this was Jeremy Banks first retelling of what happened that night it was noteworthy that he didn't use Michelle's name at all Jeremy also indicated that this was a mutual breakup now we get to the critical portion of the story Every detail here is crucial. However, there was nothing in Jeremy's story between when his buddy left and when the gun popped. This is a key time frame. Later in the interview, Jeremy stated that it was five to 10 minutes between the time his buddy left and when he heard the first gunshot. Yet he provided no information on what happened during this gap in time. Jeremy then stated, quote, that's whenever I heard the gun pop, unquote. 
He trailed off as he said it, and then he stopped. We are left to fill in the blanks. Let's go back to the interview. We were outside in the yard driveway. I was, my motorcycle was in the garage. I was sitting on it with my head down, just upset about you know, the breakup. It's true. Sure. But uh, I heard it pop, and I knew exactly what it was. Just instinct. I just said, oh, shit. And I ran inside. I started screaming her name, and the bedroom door was locked. And I screamed her name again. I heard it go off again for the second time. I ran into the living room, I grabbed the, the phone, and I kicked the bedroom door in, and I found her laying where she is. Okay. Jeremy's voice kind of trailed off on that tape. He said, I heard the gun go off again a second time. I ran into the room, grabbed the phone, and I kicked the bedroom door, and I found her laying there. And then the sheriff's office showed up. Jeremy failed to note whether or not Michelle responded to him. This was a significant detail, because if she responded to him, then she was still alive. Yet, if he didn't hear anything from her, it would have been quite alarming and ominous. However, he didn't mention it. That's right, because the first shot missed. Not necessarily. Under a suicide scenario, the first shot missed. But if this was a homicide, we don't know whether the first or second shot was fatal. It's important to note that the garage and the bedroom where Michelle supposedly locked herself in are on the same side of the house. If he heard a gunshot and there was no response coming from the room, what was he waiting for? It would have taken no effort to break through an interior door. Jeremy then stated that he heard it go off again. He didn't say that he heard the gun go off. He stated it, which placed distance between Jeremy Banks and the gun. He didn't want to be associated with the gun. It also didn't just go off. Someone pulled the trigger. Under a suicide scenario, Michelle was so depressed about her relationship with Jeremy that she decided to take her own life. Jeremy was right outside the room and she didn't say anything to him prior to killing herself. That doesn't make sense. Jeremy also indicated that he found her lying where she is and the sheriff's office showed up. Lots of problems with this portion of his story. First of all, what did he see when he entered the room? He failed to provide any information on this. No mention of blood, no mention of her condition at all. He also skipped a lot of the story here. Wait, so he never tried to help her? That's right. He didn't even check if she was breathing. He just assumed she was dead. Many people deny the death of a loved one for hours, days, and even years. Jeremy took one look and concluded there was nothing he could do to help her. Yet Michelle was still alive at this point. In his answer, Jeremy also left out the fact that he called the sheriff's office. Once again, this was implied in his answer. Why did he omit this? The phone call was another sensitive area for Jeremy. He didn't provide any details on what he did between kicking in the bedroom door and when the sheriff's office arrived. Five minutes elapsed between the 911 call and when the first sheriff's deputy arrived. In a stressful life and death situation, seconds feel like hours. Yet he conveyed no information about what he did for those five minutes. The questioning turned to Michelle's behavior and what Jeremy did prior. I went inside about maybe two, two, three times just to check on her while she was in the house gathering some of her belongings. And, uh, I went in and I asked her, I said, you know, is there anything I can do to help, anything you need? And she said, no, Jeremy, I just, I just need my space. And I said, okay. Under either a suicide or homicide scenario, I have a hard time believing that Jeremy was all nurturing and kind to her during this time, as if it was an idyllic breakup. He then quoted what Michelle said, No, Jeremy, I just need my space. 
People rarely use a person's name when they are talking to them, especially in an intimate relationship, because it's completely unnecessary. This sounded more like dialogue from a movie or a book than a recollection of their conversation. Last thing I, I said to her, I told her I loved her. I said, please don't do anything stupid. I do love you. And I just... What were you thinking? Don't do anything stupid. What do you mean by that? The last thing Jeremy said to Michelle was, please don't do anything stupid. According to Jeremy, he did everything he could to help her and told her how much he cared right before she killed herself. What a calm ending to their relationship. Jeremy then talked about what Michelle didn't say. She didn't say she was going to kill herself. This was a backhanded way of introducing false information and directing the conversation. Michelle didn't say anything about killing herself, but now this is where the conversation headed. When Jeremy made the concerned statement, don't do anything stupid, Michelle allegedly responded, Jeremy, I have Alexis. Once again, she utilized his name in conversation. She also mentioned her young daughter as a reason why she wouldn't hurt herself. Did she say where she was going to go tonight? No, no. We normally when we fight like this, she always says she's going to not fight like this. I take it back. Whenever we fight or whenever, you know, she'll say she's going to her mom's house. Okay. So that that's generally where she is her her place of refuge. Okay. What well, was there any particular issue that y'all just weren't getting along lately, or? Uh, yeah, we don't get along. I mean, that's never, never bad fighting. It's always just arguing. Mm-hmm. And I'm sick. Sometimes like, I tell her I get sick of her shit and just pack her shit and go. Then Jeremy says, we fight all the time. He says he gets sick of her shit and tells her to pack up her shit and go. Jeremy uttered, normally when we fight like this. Then he caught himself and tried to retract the statement. His girlfriend was dead after they had a fight, and he stated, normally when we fight like this. This was likely not the first time one of their fights ended badly. Yes, whenever she said, I'll have my stuff out by this weekend, and I said, are we breaking up? She said, yes. I was like, all right. So now Jeremy changes his story and just admits that it was Michelle who broke up with him. Yes, earlier in the interview, he described it as a mutual breakup. Several people close to Michelle stated that she told them prior that she was going to break up with Jeremy. This changed the scenario significantly, as it was Michelle's decision to end the relationship. I raised my voice, she raised her voice, we argued. But we got to the house, we were fine, we started talking, and then kind of just played out from there. That was Jeremy describing how things were when they got home. He said things were fine and that they pretty much played out from there. He is referring to his girlfriend being shot to death, if you weren't sure what he meant by how things played out from there. The subject turned to how much Jeremy had to drink at the concert. He responded, I had a lot to drink. He admitted to having four or five beers. He described them as big ones. He added that he had $100 in cash and that they were $7 a piece, implying that they could figure out how much he drank by doing the math. Detective Hines asked if Michelle had any drinks because she clearly realized that $100 divided by seven equates to a lot more than four or five drinks. Jeremy was unquestionably drunk, but he indicated that Michelle didn't have a lot to drink. Let me ask you this. In the past, has this ever been something that she said she would do? Have there been threats? About a month ago, we were fighting, and she she tried to come at me, and she tried to hit me. And I grabbed a hold of her and I said, what are you doing? You know what I'm doing. You know who I am. You know what I what I do. You're putting me in a bad spot. I said, just just go. And 
and she tried to hit me again because she was just so angry. Mm-hmm. And uh, whenever she did that, she said, she said, I mean, not verbatim, I can't tell you exactly what she said, but the words were, sometimes I just, you just make me want to kill myself. Whenever she said that, I said, are you, are you kidding me? Michelle was so angry at Jeremy that she allegedly tried to hit him twice. And then she reportedly said to him, quote, you make me so mad, I want to kill myself, unquote. I'm not sure how her anger at Jeremy quickly turned toward herself. Jeremy said the phrase, you know who I am, twice. Being a deputy sheriff is very important to him. He also told us that he needed to explain to Michelle how important he is. Jeremy's ego was clearly on display during this portion of the interview, even though that was not his intention. I spoke with Laura Richards about Jeremy's assertion of power. Her background is in forensic and legal psychology. She also worked in Scotland Yard, running their sexual offenses section. You know, anyone who's reminding another, you know who I am, do you know what I do? You know, I'm law enforcement, which sadly I've worked many cases of women being murdered by police officer perpetrators and all those reinforcers are, are put in to play, which means that a victim is much less likely to call anybody for help or to speak out about what's going on. You know, if the perpetrator is a police officer, the chances reduce dramatically of the victim calling for help because too often people think that law enforcement family, it's a family and therefore nothing's going to happen and, and the victim won't be believed. And oftentimes that's what the perpetrator continues to tell them. So even just getting a gun out and polishing it or touching it is a reinforcer to the victim. Detective Hines brings the conversation back to the moment right before Jeremy dials 911. Tell me, tell me exactly what you did. Yeah, I keep the door open. I was kind of veered in. I saw her feet. I ran in. I saw the coming out. After he saw Michelle, Jeremy stated, I saw blood coming out. I grabbed her hand. Deputy Sheriff Jeremy Banks didn't do anything to assess her well-being, such as take her pulse, call to her, or shake her. Then, instead of answering Detective Hines' question, Jeremy decides to take this opportunity to justify his strange behavior during the 911 call. I, you know, I tried to not sound like somebody from the sheriff's office. I tried to sound like somebody just calling in to say something. Yeah. And they kept giving me a whole bunch of bullshit. So I told them finally who I was and just get somebody here. This was an incredibly insightful tidbit of information. Jeremy just admitted that he tried to deceive the 911 operator. He tried to sound like someone else. Why would someone not only be deceptive during a 911 call, but think about being deceptive? Here is Laura Richards again. You know, having analyzed hundreds and hundreds of 999s and 911s, you know, there's certainly some very concerning things that are done and said within that 911, which would have made me approach the case right from the start as being highly suspicious. And given that he's got a law enforcement background, you know that he knows that, but he's trying to sound authentic. And therefore, you hear all these other extraneous noises but I think the where he says, you know, it's sir, and he says that four times, his voice lowers and he says, hang on, let me tell you the truth. 
well, were you not telling us the truth prior to that? That really is one of the indicators, you know, of, of deception. When Jeremy stated, let me tell you the truth during the 911 call, that was exactly what he meant. The previous information was not the truth. We don't have to extrapolate regarding his deception on the 911 call. He just told us that he wanted to fool the operator. <laughs> I have to give Detective Hines a lot of credit here. Excessive crying can be an effective way of ending a given line of questioning. However, she just waited for him to stop crying and then continued with her questions. <laughs> What was your initial thought? Why why'd you want to just sound like somebody calling in? I'm always worried about my name being on the radar in the sheriff's office. I, so I just called and say my girlfriend shot herself, my girlfriend shot herself, and they kept giving, telling me to calm the fuck down. Who the fuck is going to calm down with that shit? So I figured if I finally just told him who I was and shut the fuck up and said somebody. Jeremy says, I dialed 911. I tried not to sound like someone from the sheriff's office. And then they kept giving me this bullshit. So I finally told them who I was just to get somebody here. John, did you expect Jeremy to have a reason for his deception on the 911 call? Absolutely. He brought it up, so he had to have an explanation ready. His rationale meant that his primary concern when calling the police to get help for his dying girlfriend was himself. Jeremy was willing to pretend to be someone else during the 911 call in order to conceal his identity. This was probably the worst answer he could have given other than directly admitting to a felony. This explanation provided tremendous insight into Jeremy's state of mind during this time frame. Jeremy was concerned about Jeremy. Remember, the interview you just listened to took place moments after Michelle was declared dead. I get it. We all deal with tragedy differently. But Jeremy's initial stage of grieving was not disbelief and shock. It was anger and resentment. Let's see how he feels after some time has passed. A week later, the same detective from the St. John Sheriff's Office, Jessica Hines, interviewed Jeremy Banks to get a fuller account of what transpired. The investigator asked Jeremy about his relationship with Michelle O'Connell and what they argued about. I wasn't that knight in shining armor, I guess you'd be saying. I wasn't opening doors for her anymore than anything stupid like that, but... She always said that she felt like she could never do anything right, and she was always just down in herself. And for who? For anybody. Anybody? Okay. Uh, I don't know if that was directed specifically towards me, but there was other times whenever she would express that she just felt like she wasn't doing anything right, like at work, with Lexi, or with her family. So, According to Jeremy, the arguments were over nothing of significance. She said, Jeremy, I just, I don't remember exactly what she said, but I remember she said, sometimes you make me want to kill myself. She went outside to just smoke a cigarette and I called the sheriff's office, but I called the non-emergency number for the reason that if I wanted to hang up, they didn't have any information. They wouldn't show up to the house. Jeremy again talks about the time that Michelle supposedly threatened to kill herself because, you know, she was so mad at him. In his first interview, he presented himself as a compassionate, loving boyfriend. That's not the case here. Correct. He explained that he told Michelle to pack up her shit and get out of his house. Jeremy also claimed that he called the sheriff's non-emergency number after she tried to hit him, but he hung up before talking with them. As a result, there'd be no record to substantiate his claim, and Jeremy was aware of this fact. I, I should have called, I should have gotten it taken care of, I should have said something on the books, you know, I just... Well... You, 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 you think she's just mad, she's just saying that shit, she, you know, you don't... 
when you work on the road and you're out there doing this shit for a living and somebody says that it's easy quick baker and you're done but whenever it's somebody that you love and you care about you just you you don't look at it like that jeremy stated i should have called i should have gotten it taken care of he then said you think she's just mad she's just saying that shit when referencing michelle threatening suicide jeremy switched from the past to the present tense so what's the significance of him switching to the present tense? Often, when a person is creating the information in the present rather than remembering it, they switch to the present tense even though they're referring to a past recollection. It can indicate the person is being less than forthright. Jeremy also replaced I with you. Rather than saying, I thought she was just mad, he said, you think she's just mad. Jeremy distanced himself through the use of the pronoun you rather than I. I went and sat on my motorcycle in the garage, just thinking, the, just thinking of the good and the bad times, just everything. So when I heard the first gunshot. The most notable thing in this segment was how long Jeremy paused in between talking about the first shot and what he did next. It was an eternity. Detective Hines showed some serious patience and strategy by not talking. She waited him out. Jeremy Banks was definitely not wanting to tell any more about what he did, but the silence eventually forced his hand, and he continued with his explanation of his actions. I knew exactly what it was. And I was hoping and praying that it wasn't, and I ran inside and the bedroom door was locked. So I screamed her name, and the second one went out. So I ran to the living room, I grabbed the phone, and I ran back to the bedroom, I kicked the door in, and there she was. Jeremy opens up some more. I've already read the report, I know I probably should have. I just wanted to know what, what was done on the other side. I know that was a little difficult to hear, but I don't want you to miss what Jeremy says. Jeremy just admitted to snooping around and reading the report for an incident he was involved in. Just like his admission of deception on the 911 call during his first interview, Jeremy just admitted to reviewing the police report associated with Michelle's death. He wasn't asked. He volunteered this information. Tell me what you, where you saw things. When I got finally in the room, she was laying down where the bathroom door, she was laying perpendicular to it. The gun was on her left side, my attack light on, and it was facing up. It just kind of looked like it fell that way against my gun belt. It just kind of looked like it fell that way. Jeremy tried to lead the investigator. He wanted to provide an explanation for how the gun ended up in this position. All right, John, so where are we going now? We're going to try to get an interview with Sheriff Shore or ask for one for a later date. Our primary concern going in there is that we get arrested, so we're hoping we do not get arrested. You know, we could walk in there and, you know, we could ask to speak to somebody and they could say no and we could just walk away and everything could be fine. Or they could really make a big stink about it. We just want to go in there, ask for permission to talk with them, and if they want to talk, fine. If they don't, well, that's their prerogative, right? That's what it seems like to me. 
Right, we're gonna make it right? No, we're going straight. I'm gonna go right across the street. Okay. John and I walked into the sheriff's office and asked to speak with Sheriff Shore, or the public information officer. The person at the window told us that no one was available to speak with us. So the sheriff's detective talked with Jeremy. But what else did they do? The sheriff's office technicians took a few pictures, collected some of the evidence, and then appeared to process some of the scene. The next day, on September 4, 2010, the autopsy of Michelle O'Connell was conducted by Dr. Frederick Holbin. A few days later, he concluded that Michelle O'Connell's cause of death was, quote, an intraoral gunshot wound with a manner of death, suicide, unquote. So what didn't they do? The St. John's Sheriff's Office assigned inexperienced detectives to Michelle's death investigation. It's been reported that the two detectives had only worked three homicides combined. John, was this lack of experience the reason so little was done? I don't think so. These detectives treated this scene as a suicide, and their investigation, or lack thereof, was geared toward proving their assumptions rather than investigating to find out what really happened. There was so much the St. John's Sheriff's Office didn't do. On the night of Michelle O'Connell's death, September 2nd, 2010, and into the morning of September 3rd, no one took a crime scene log. No one from the sheriff's office canvassed the neighborhood. In fact, St. John's County Sheriff's Office investigators never interviewed anyone from the neighborhood. Several deputies who were on the scene failed to write reports on what they did and observed while on scene. Minimal evidence was collected. No one from the sheriff's office photographed Jeremy Banks or collected all the clothes he was wearing. On top of that, St. John's Sheriff's investigators failed to send what little evidence they did collect to state investigators. If there's an officer-involved shooting, St. John's Sheriff's Office would normally recuse themselves from the investigation. However, in this situation, the Sheriff's Office claimed this was not an officer-involved shooting, but merely a shooting involving an officer's firearm. So what went wrong? St. John's County Sheriff's assigned inexperienced investigators to the case. The Sheriff's Office failed to interview the responding paramedics, Michelle's family members, or any of the people who texted with Michelle leading up to her death. No one collected Jeremy Banks' cell phone or forensically examined it. They also didn't collect and examine Jeremy and Michelle's computers. The investigators also failed to develop a timeline of events surrounding Michelle O'Connell's death. There are so many things wrong with the way this scene was processed. We couldn't help but wonder, how would a seasoned investigator handle this case? So we asked Cloyd Steiger, a retired homicide detective from the Seattle Police Department. Cloyd Steiger has over three decades of experience, and 22 years of those were in his department's homicide unit. We intentionally didn't brief Cloyd Steiger on Michelle O'Connell's case. We just wanted to know how he would hypothetically handle a case like this. The scenario is that um, a woman has been shot through the mouth. She's dead. And you're called to the scene. And her boyfriend is a police officer who works in your department. And he's saying that she killed herself. So kind of just kind of walk through your thoughts on that scenario. Well, first of all, most interoral gunshot wounds are suicide. I don't know of an interoral gunshot wound. I'm sure there are somewhere that's a homicide, just because it's so difficult to do to get the gun in the mouth 
of the person, unless she was unconscious or drugged, and then, of course, you have to wait for toxicology to find that out. I'd be wondering if there was anything on her lips or her teeth or something that would show that the gun was forced in her mouth while she resisted. Next, we wanted to talk about the interview with Jeremy recorded inside the detective's car at the scene. Is that typical? Remember, Cloyd doesn't know anything about this case. Talk about the initial interview. How would you want to interview this individual? Well, I wouldn't interview him at the scene. First of all, I'd have him taken down to my office and put in an interview room. And I'd uh, interview him there. And I'd just ask him to go through the story. Tell me what what happened. And then uh, and, and it, to see if his story matches what the physical evidence at the scene shows. If you're coming onto the scene, and so it's initially reported as in, like, you know, came in through the 911 call that it's a, a suicide. Does that affect how you're, like, are you treating the case as a suicide at that point, or how are you treating it going in? No, you don't treat any death investigation one way or the other. You're treating it as a death investigation, and you, you don't draw those conclusions. Well, first of all, the person who makes the call, or whether it's a homicide or a suicide, is not the police. It's the medical examiner or the coroner. You have to go in with an open mind always and not let your uh, internal biases affect the way you investigate the case. What evidence would you want to have collected? Uh, yeah, obviously, the gun. One of the clear things would be is her DNA on the gun, right? First of all, you're going to find his DNA on the gun. So that doesn't mean anything because it's his gun. The St. Johns County Sheriff's Department didn't test the gun for DNA. This will come back and haunt them when the case ramps up. Cloyd? also says that he would like to take note of the gun's position. Most of the time, especially with a woman shooting a gun into her mouth, the gun's not going to be in her hand anymore. It's going to fly out. So if I got there and the gun was in her hand, that would be suspicious to me right away. The scene photos show the gun was located next to Michelle's left hand. Again, this was her weak hand. If it, I'm presuming it's a semi-automatic. It's yes. probably, it's probably, if she would have put it in her mouth there's a good chance it would have a misfire. So the fire casing would not fully eject, and you'd have what we call a stovepipe. A stovepipe malfunction is when a bullet casing doesn't fully eject. Instead, it gets jammed in the ejection port. They call it a stovepipe because it sticks out the top of the gun and looks like a smokestack. So why does Cloyd Steiger think this happened? That's because she'll be holding the gun in a limp-wristed position and have it then for the mechanism to work, it has to be against a solid base, a firm grip, to hold it while the, while the power of the inertia of the gunpowder moves the slide back. But if you have a, a limp wrist, then you have what's like a shock absorber effect, and it doesn't have that firm base. And oftentimes, you'll have a stovepipe or a malfunction in the gun. You'll fire one round, but, but then it'll malfunction. So one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to have that gun tested uh, by the lab and, and simulate a weak-wristed firing to see if the gun does malfunction. If it does malfunction in the test but was not malfunctioning at the time of the shooting, that's suspicious. More importantly, though, I'd get her computer, her phone, her tablet, everything like that. I'd seize all that stuff for forensic examination later to see what she wrote on there, any messages she sent, any texts uh, about any problem between them or any thoughts, any suicidal thoughts on her part. Would you not interview the victim's friends and families or you just would think it's more? No, important? I would. Okay. Yeah, I would. Absolutely. I would. People kill people, kill themselves all the time. And people very close to them have no idea anything's going on. 
right? They think, no, they were fine. They've never said anything about it. They've never, but you don't know what's going on inside somebody, uh, even if you're very close. Unless, you know, they might say things like, she told me she's afraid of him. She thinks he's going to do something to her. You know, that'd be, you'd want that information. Right. But, uh, what about as far as, like, if it was in a canvassing a neighborhood with a gunshot like that, would you talk to neighbors or not? Yeah, we, I, I talk, I only talk to neighbors. I'd want to know what they know about this couple, you know, what they've seen, what they've heard, you know, that type of thing. I wouldn't want to necessarily, you know, at the time of the gunshot, where were you? What did you hear? I mean, I heard a gunshot. <laughs> right. It does me no good. Yeah. Yeah. We were about to wrap up our conversation when Cloyd stopped us to tell us one more thing. So, by the way, let me throw this in there. You want to have, you want to get the 911 tape and uh, listen to it. Listen to it. His, how he acts or reacts on the 911 tape. After listening to Cloyd Steiger, a seasoned homicide detective, talk about what he would have done in this hypothetical death scene, it's clear that the sheriff's office could have done a more thorough investigation. And you might be asking yourself, well, who's in charge of this mess? The answer is Sheriff David Shore. So why is the sheriff allowed to conduct his own investigation? Sheriffs have pretty much unrestricted control over their entire county with regard to enforcing laws and maintaining its jails. Their jurisdiction is their kingdom, and very few people can tell the sheriff how to run his county. That's a lot of power for one man to hold. So you're telling me that no one can hold the sheriff accountable if it's not an election year? It's possible that the Florida Senate can remove a sheriff, but it's not an easy endeavor. And it's certainly not a well-traveled avenue. Despite his vast authority, Sheriff Shore caved to mounting pressures from the community and the O'Connell family. More than four months after Michelle O'Connell was laid to rest, Sheriff Shore turned the investigation over to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Now, John, four months after the fact, Sheriff Shore turned over the investigation to FDLE. Did he have to do this? No, Sheriff Shore had complete control over this decision. He may have felt pressure, but it was his decision. He voluntarily allowed FDLE to take over Michelle's death investigation. Next time on Criminal Conduct, the state's investigation into the Michelle O'Connell case ramps up. And things aren't looking so good for Jeremy. New evidence forces Sheriff Shore to put Jeremy Banks on administrative leave. Also, we heard reports that Eli Washtock had a second apartment for his son because Eli feared for their safety. So we tried to find out if these rumors were true. But what we found threw us off course. Do you know si había un hombre que se llamaba Eli Washtock que vivía al frente, sí. Que murió. Sí, que se murió. Sí, sí, él murió ahí. Él murió ahí. Así que con mucha gente. She says that he died here. That doesn't make any sense. That's next time on Criminal Conduct. We're going to be taking a mid-season break, and a new episode will be out in two weeks. A special thanks to our executive producer, Advertise Cast, and to Ruby Rose Fox for allowing us to use her song, Bury the Body. Her music is available anywhere you can purchase music. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And
Also, make sure to check out our other shows. John Taylor hosts a podcast called Twisted. Each episode, John unravels intricacies of true crime and does a deep dive analysis of some of the most thought-provoking crime cases. And check out the show Pretend Podcast. It's hosted by me, Javier Leva. Pretend is a true crime documentary style podcast about real people pretending to be someone else. I interview con artists and their victims. The links to both of our shows are in the show notes. You've heard the stories of bloody murder and horrendous homicide. But what about the rest of the crimes people fall victim to every day? What about the burglar who broke into famous people's homes? What happened to the forensic chemist that falsified evidence? Who are the fraudsters, arsonists, stalkers, hackers, and more? I'm Lindsay, the host of Mugshot. Mugshot is a true crime podcast bringing you stories of the non-murderous crimes you didn't know you needed to hear. Be sure to find Mugshot on your favorite podcatcher and on all social media outlets at the handle at MugshotPod. But until then, stay out of trouble or you may end up pictured in your very own Mugshot. Creative Babble.